I hope I'm not alienating any people who got raised in some kind of dogmatic church and you're thinking, oh no, here we go again. I thought I got away from this stuff. <laughs> so today I want to talk about the afflictive emotions. Sometimes we use this word um, suffering and we might not actually have a personal reference point for that. Or we might say, oh yeah, sometimes I suffer. But I don't suffer all that much. That's why I only come to session every three years or whatever. But suffering is a, is a bush with various brambles. And so I'm going to talk about those brambles. Now, I kind of made up the six afflictive emotions because the three poisons seems kind of insufficient. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's five. Um, I'm not sure which one I added. I think I added indifference. So the first is pride. I'm better than, I'm less than, I'm equal to. All of those are pride. I'll unpack that. Second, envy. Third, fear. Fourth, greed. That means grasping, that means prolonging, and that means indulging. Then anger. There's cold anger. There's hot anger. There's anger facing in, anger facing out. And then indifference. Carelessness, disconnection, whateverness. And these are why we practice. The afflictive emotions have a self-evident wisdom sting. The sting of them already embodies their affliction. These are the shapes of unhappiness. These are the result of experiencing oneself as a separate self, ignorance. And these are the gates to awakening. Pride, envy, fear, greed, anger, indifference. Is that six? One, two, three, four, five, six. If you hear that list and you go, well, none of those apply to me, you're a free person. That's awesome. But probably that would be pride. <laughs> probably that would be indifference. Only you would know. It's good to understand the radical thing that you've undertaken. I know there's an assumption there, but it's good to understand the radical thing you're beginning, myself included, to undertake. In consensus reality, these emotions, it says they're normal, they're natural, they're justified. Right? My anger, my indifference, my pride is normal, it's natural, it's justified. And in consensus reality, they are normal, they are natural, they are justified. Dharma is not naturalness. Dharma is going against 
the instinctive self-cherishing of a human being. Buddha says that afflictive emotions contain the self-evident sting of wisdom. Pleasant faces become contorted. A body in equilibrium gets dysregulated. All of the emotions articulate their poison in the moment they're embodied. The emotions have a self-evident wisdom sting. Buddha says that you are not bad for having them. That's important. You're human for having them. And yet the path is not going with the instinctual, habitual human way. It's a little bit off to say the bodhisattva path is the path of human beings. Not quite right. Turn on the news and behold the path of human being. There's both a blessing and a curse about being a point of consciousness in time and space. When we fully embrace this point of consciousness in time and space, it has no edges. But it also means that human life, or probably true for all consciousnesses, lose the forest for the trees. That means that we cannot quite understand, and maybe never can, the consequence of, for example, indulging afflictive emotion. We tend to think, well, it's actually no big deal. Maybe, maybe not. The nature of habit is to continually self-replicate. Why is it that bad habits seem to self-replicate more than good ones? Is it just that we've had them longer? Is it just that this body is made of self-cherishing? Not the deepest thing it's made of, but... But the nature of habit is to continually self-replicate, to keep spawning descendants. And it won't end of itself. Nobody spends five years immersed in complaining mind about their life and their partner and whatever else, and then all of a sudden in year six is free of it. It never happened. I guarantee it. Maybe someone has some kind of conversion experience. They wake up to what that mind is. So the nature of habit is to continually self-replicate. It won't end of itself, and we're responsible for stopping the self-replication of affliction within ourselves. If you want.
ultimately we don't cut anything off. Some Zen ancestors said, if you cut off the afflictive emotions, you sever the life vein of the Buddhas. I really like that image. If you cut off the afflictive emotions, you sever the lifeblood of the Mahayana. That doesn't mean that you indulge or justify emotion. But it's saying that infused with awareness, each are, we could say, an energy of truth. The message is not the medium. The medium is good. The message, often problematic. So pride, I'm better than, I'm less than, I'm equal to. Not too difficult to understand the problem of thinking we're better than. And we often think of this in terms of other people, how that's not right. But we also may conceive that I'm better than having a certain experience. We call that perception indignity. I'm too good to be going through such and such. Or I am somehow special and I shouldn't have to experience cancer, getting laid off, my lover leaving me, or whatever. I'm less than is also pride. The inner critic is also pride. Why? Because it's, it's some picture of ourself being compared to others. Most inner critics, one of the things they like is they go, I'm terrible, but then they look out and go, yeah, but at least they're a little bit more terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm the rank of terrible, I'm somewhere on the scale, but I'm not at the very bottom. Even harder to understand is, I'm equal to, is still pride. It's still a self-concept. How do I know if I'm equal to somebody? How do they know if they're equal to me? With pride, we can't even walk into the grocery store or the zendo without ranking or sizing up others. And so the simple movements through life become fraught with a particular kind of dissonance. With pride, we can't walk into the zendo or the grocery store without worrying about being ranked or sized up. That too is pride. Now, there are situations where the judgment of others could be harmful. I'm putting aside those, everyone brings in the extreme arguments against Dharma often. With pride, we can't even eat our egg frittata without ranking or sizing up it or others and how they eat it 
or worried about being ranked or sized up as we eat. Am I eating too fast, too slow? Do they, am I eating spiritually? Am I, who's watching? Am I chewing too fast? Not enough. I remember there was somebody who was like, you know, Jogan, you should really chew each bite like 42 times. That's the yogic way. And I tried that and it was hell. And so, <laughs> but for a long time, I thought she was always judging me about how many times I chewed my food because I don't really like to chew my food. It gets sort of mushy in there and I'd rather swallow it and move on to a fresh bite. So, Pride is based on comparison. It's based on the belief in separate enduring existence. Pride says, I know which version of me is the true one. But how do you know which version of you is the true one? You can never see your own face in the mirror. You can see your mirror face. Maybe somebody shows you a photo of yourself or you see yourself in a video, but even then, you can't see it because the discriminating mind will go, ooh, or ooh, yeah, I'm having a good day. Pride closes our heart. We can't love freely this beautiful aspiration of impartial great affection. It's not available when there's pride. It's not available when people are ranked according to who's worthy or not worthy of love. And yet prior to separation, prior to discrimination, the condition is innocence. It's pristine presence. It's life unsullied. If we were free from pride, we wouldn't be worthy or unworthy. And then there would be some innate dignity. Without pride, we wouldn't be above or below or equal to. But there would be innate dignity. I sometimes um, recommend, and it's just an extension of the hot potato thing, that um, people sometimes believe that they need to be carrying um, their practice as an idea and be thinking about how their practice is going. But no, you don't. In each moment, your, your guts, your, your tanden, or your heart, or both, they, practice springs from that. You can trust that. But to carry the idea of a practice, whether it's, it's good, it's bad, you start to move into pride. Dogen Zenji said, as long as bowing exists, the teaching of awakened ones pervades. When bowing doesn't exist, the teaching of awakened ones does not pervade. To feel the meaning of a bow, 
to be present in the, at the core of a bow. You're not bowing to lower yourself to something that is higher. What is bowing? Envy. I hope I'm not alienating any people who got raised in some kind of dogmatic church and you're thinking, oh no, here we go again. I thought I got away from this stuff. <laughs> envy. We envy other versions of ourselves imagining that their circumstance would be fulfilling. Sometimes we sit here on these cushions and we envy a past version of who we were. Although, if you could go back in time, that past version of who you were would be envying some other, maybe future or past version of itself. We envy some other version of ourselves that seems external, imagining that their circumstance would be fulfilling. And this co-arises with believing ours isn't or couldn't be. Or which comes first? Do I envy either my own idea of what I could be or what someone else is, and then I feel like this isn't fulfilling? Or do I feel that this isn't fulfilling and then my mind goes into envy? Envy is a, is a, a painful form of desire. I think if we could switch places with another person, we would actually be very disappointed. Isn't what we want to genuinely inhabit this life? And when we envy, whether it's our imagination of ourselves, it's imagining that self genuinely inhabiting its life. Or we imagine some other person's life and why it's enviable is because we imagine they are genuinely inhabiting their life. What we want is to genuinely inhabit our life. And you, if you get old enough, you realize if you could switch places, somebody, or you do change life situations, you realize that here and there, being this or that, are just different configurations of challenge. Your mind goes with you. There's nothing actually worth desiring. It's not saying that life isn't rich and beautiful. Envy. Someone has something I want or someone doesn't have something I want to not have. But what has come into our lap is intimate to us. It's the shape of our life. It's not the love of appreciation of, of life that's the problem with desire. It's the disappreciation of the life that is right here. The Buddha looked out on human beings and 
saw that those who have are burdened by having. Those who don't have are burdened by not having. And consensus reality says to prefer the former and avoid the latter, but that not, may not be wisdom. I guess that's just the old adage, be careful what you wish for. So to work with uh, envy, whether it's for a version of yourself or for someone else, is to realize you wish to bring forward the best of yourself. You wish to inhabit the life that you can inhabit. The sting of envy is, is ringing that. If you're envious of how someone else's practice looks, which is always funny, and sometimes literally as a teacher, somebody will come in and say, oh, such and such is such a great sitter. And then that person comes into sons and they're just like, oh, I've just been thinking of my first love all week. On the outside, they just look so peaceful. and <laughs> They're in a samadhi of memory. Greed, grasping, let's say that in this sense that means the, the, the recurring insistence, the, the, the enduring demand that things be otherwise. But also there's greed in prolonging, wanting something to stay, being upset that it doesn't. There's greed in indulging. Often we do this um, with emotions. There's all this kind of mixed messages from the 70s and 80s about emotion in our culture, and even, even 90s and aughts and onward. You know, should we go into an emotion? Should we look for an emotion? Should I breathe into my emotion and make it bigger? Should I concentrate on it? Well, just to let emotion have its, its natural organic lifespan. It's energy and motion. Then what happens? So greed. Absent practice we're like water that's always sloshing out of its container. We're like people going through life tilted, always toward somewhere, something else. Even arriving at our imagined object of consummate fulfillment, we're tilted. Why? Because we've been tilted. What makes it going to stop when we get to the great sex or the big bank account or whatever? It's not just going to untilt because the imagined object of fulfillment, we have contact with it. No, we'll still be tilted. Tilted somewhere towards something else. Tilted towards the monastery where everything is perfect. The teachers have no flaws. 
tilted toward the Zen center where everybody follows the rules. Oh wait, that's really annoying. Oops, tilted. At the edge of a pure land, we're tilted, and so the pure land tilts away. You can't enter it if you're tilted. We have to stop enough to take this beyond theory. Actually, this is mental illness. This is the great pandemic, beginningless pandemic of mental illness, this tiltedness. We have to stop. And then the heart beating, feel it, is a treasure of vibrant richness. It's not really going to get any better than that. And that's not a statement of ho-hum. Inhalation, exhalation is a treasure of vibrant richness. Seeing colors, hearing sounds, feeling heat or cool, softness or hardness. All the emotions too, a treasure of vibrant richness. This human body is so alive with energies and textures. There's never going to be something other than it that matches its, its treasure of richness. But we have to stop. Or this is just theory. Talk a little bit about anger. So I mentioned cold anger, hot anger, anger facing in, anger facing out. It's good to mention that because sometimes we think, I'm, yeah, I'm not angry. <laughs> Jim Harrison, this is one of my favorite poems. Jim Harrison wrote, I can freely tie myself up without a rope. This talent is in the realm of anti-magic, and many people have it. On a dawn walk, despite the creek, birds, and forest, I have to get through the used part, the murky fluid of rehearsals and resentments. But then they drain away, and I'm finally where I already am, smack dab in the middle of each step, the air you can taste. The evening primrose that startled by my visit doesn't turn away. There's a lot of nuance in anger, and I simply cannot address it out, address it all. All statements are one-sided. In some sense, everything that's spoken is a lie. You can't do anything about that. You can just do your best. All harms and indignities and disrespect and disregard, the coldnesses and the lovelessness of consensus reality, all these are children of ignorance. All the harms, indignities, disrespect, and disregard. All the coldnesses and lovelessnesses. 
These are the spawn of ignorance. We like to think people are ignorant and to blame for it so we can place our frustration on something out there. But Buddha teaches that ignorance peoples. Out of ignorance, selves pop forth, unaware of what they are. That's the sobering assessment of reality, according to Buddha. It's not the whole story. It's not his whole assessment, but that's, the, that's an important point. Ignorance peoples. In other words, selves don't contain ignorance. Ignorance contains selves. There are those who are deluded within enlightenment. There are those who are enlightened within delusion. We believe that there are selves that contain ignorance and they become the objects of our scorn, worthy of our anger. I'm just continually astonished by how everybody thinks they are right. How can that be? Consider the strangeness of that. I think I'm right. They think they're right. Somehow I think my thinking I'm right is the superior thinking I'm right, and they think the exact same thing, and the whole world is in this. Everybody thinks they are right. And I might be wrong about that. Selves don't contain ignorance. Ignorance contains selves. And ignorance is impartial. As long as you're a self, you're in the boat. That's why we're bowing continually. In some traditions, you do thousands of bows. We used to do that in the morning here at Great Vow. We wake up every morning. We come in with our grumpy-ass selves, and we would do 108 bows, or whatever the number was. I don't remember now. Ignorance is impartial. Now, it's not being said that ignorant makes you bad and wisdom makes you good. That's not actually being said. You have to be careful here. This is not a judgment. Ignorance is impartial. As long as you're a self or you take yourself to be one, you're in the boat. It's okay. So if anger arises, consider the actual source of all harms. It's not a person. It's ignorance. The actual source of all harms, indignities, disrespect, and disregard is ignorance. It is not a person. A person that harms or is indignant or disrespectful is spawned from ignorance. Ignorance is the source. So we bring that heat, that anger that wants to go outward, and we infuse awareness with its energy. This is Manjushri's sword at the altar. Does this one have a sword? Or is it a flower? Yeah. This is Fudo Myo'o with chains and fangs and spikes and flames coming off their back. We blaze fiercely through illusion. Be angry, but use it appropriately. Then it burns clean. 
It's interesting, if you meet somebody who's actually that accomplished in the spiritual path, they can chew you out and somehow it doesn't land personally, it just burns something away. So according to my current teacher, the favorite affliction of Americans is indifference. And that includes carelessness. That includes disconnection. And let's call it whateverness. Whatever. The cost of wholehearted life is living the whole heart of life. The benefit of wholehearted life is living the whole heart of life. The 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self. They will all advance. They will all realize the self. No, no separation is not all ice cream and ponies. It's all coming anyway, and none of it is really going anyway. So we feel it. We be it. Each person has their own proportion, it seems, of pleasure and pain, of good stuff and bad stuff. Of course, that's all just consensus reality mind that says this is good stuff and bad stuff. Each person has their proportion. Do we know why? People make guesses. So indifference is actually really a sham. Whateverness is really a sham. You know why? Because we're totally invested in our own pleasure and self-preservation. Most people are just amateur at being indifferent. Maybe for now, whateverness seems the best way to shut out pain and preserve the self. Well, whatever. Whatever. I don't really care. Doesn't really matter. Gonna die anyway. It's all the Buddha way anyway. And yet, whateverness has its uh, signature wisdom sting. It's the sting of numbness. It's the sting of frozen tears. It's the sting of a frozen heart. The problem, in my unauthoritative opinion, the problem is that we don't take indifference far enough, actually. Our, in, our indifference is amateur. It's lukewarm indifference. It needs to be several notches past the dude of Big Lebowski. I'm not, I'm making light of it, but I'm serious. Take it to the apex point of nothing matters at all, including the matter of not wanting to feel stress, including the matter of not wanting to experience loss. Even that doesn't matter. Don't care, completely don't care. Including about your own desires, including about your preferences, including about your past, present, and future. At that moment, we're free. 
be frictionless, be unreservably open. Pleasure comes, pain comes. Clarity comes, muddledness comes. Avoiding doesn't matter. What's left when nothing matters becomes thoroughgoing is just spaciousness. And staying in that doesn't matter. And so we don't get stuck there even. Fear. It's interesting that you, you don't find a lot about fear in the Dharma teachings except that you should be free of it or that everybody wants to be free of it. Now, on one level, our bodies evolutionarily speaking, have the ratio is much more threat to safety, apparently, and so they are attuned to instinctually avoid harm and seek safety. Adrenaline, elevated heart rate. In actual danger, this is the body's wisdom. In actual danger. There's a story of a great Zen master when some invading army came in and was going in and, and um, slicing up the monks and this Zen master, um, there were some people sitting with him and they expected him just to die in silence and he just started screaming when the person came with the sword. That was his teaching. Ah! He cut his head off. That was... When the need is great, the function is great. But really, what we're dealing with most of the time is a mishandling of the energy of uncertainty. We're born and die in uncertainty. We can't even be certain that we've been born you can't even be certain that you will die, and you can't even be certain you'll have to pay taxes. This is actually a core koan. Prove that you've been born. Uncertainty. We don't have control of life. Or in other words, we can't really do avoiding. This is, this is the universe's body. It includes everything. That's why it's called universe, right? It includes everything. We don't have control of life, and we can't avoid life. Can't avoid even avoiding life, or you can't avoid trying to control life. We're not controlling the body. It 
at any moment, this heart could just stop. Mind fears not having control. Is wanting to control what fear is. If we train on these very cushions the robust willingness to feel even the unpleasant, even what the mind says is terrible, then what would happen with fear? Rilke advised a young poet, let everything happen to you, beautiful and terrible. Not saying seek the terrible, but to let what's happening happen. In some ways, uh, an unpracticing human life is like trying to like move through the obstacle course and hopefully you won't like hit one of the, the little traps. We're all trying to make it to the end and only have the good stuff. Get out unscarred. But that in itself is a terrible thing. The Buddha says we should fear non-virtue. We should fear the, the untrained mind. In fact, many of you have probably read the, the, the Dhammapada. Buddha says something like, I, know, I see nothing so frightening as the untrained mind. These increase the likelihood of encountering the terrible, for sure. Zen Master Banke would say something like, a few instances of, of being captured by lustful mind and you're reborn as a hungry ghost. An instant of getting captured by anger and you're reborn in the hells. It's not permanent. As we, we sit here on these cushions, we can see that we don't trust ourselves very much. We may not even trust ourselves, for example, after chanting service to know how to go to dinner and get a cup of tea. We have to go through it in our minds and kind of plot our course just right. We don't trust that we would know how to do that when the time comes. Or somebody sits here for an hour thinking about what they're going to say to me in Sanzen or whoever else is playing that role. We don't trust that actually something would just come forth from us. We don't believe that we're genuine at the core. We have to perform. We have to fill empty space. Control it. I was once so nervous before I went in to see Harada Roshi, I almost pooped my pants. But partially that was because I wasn't willing to plan what I was going to say. Mind mistrusts our own spontaneity, our own authenticity. And so the unplanned, meaning the open, is avoided.
the present is actually avoided. It's already filled. Tilted. Meditation is not about control. At least not Zen meditation. It's not about losing control either. I hope this doesn't just sound like sort of fancy Zen talk. It's not this, it's not that. But it's not this and it's not that. It's true. It's not about control and it's not about losing control. Contact, attention, and chosen object of focus. That's not about control either. It's about staying firm in the great wide uncertainty. A Dharma version of the Bene Gesserit Pith Instruction by Lady Jessica Atreides. I must not identify with fear. Identifying with fear is the mind killer. It is the little death that brings obliteration. I will face fear and I will permit it to pass over me and through me. <laughs>